Jesus. Is that not a summary of all our exhortations to each other? Every perfection is found in Him. Even as we consider the qualities of faith today, as I concluded the message last week, we must not forget that these qualities of faith that Peter the Apostle explains to us in 2 Peter chapter 1 are, are nothing but the outline of the person of our Lord that He embodies all of these perfectly. So I will read for us, if you, if you want to go ahead and turn there in your Bibles, Second Peter chapter 1. And I will read, as I did last week, verses 3 through 11. This is a section or a a unit of the text as as hopefully is apparent to you, but we're taking it in bite-sized pieces. So lend the text your attention as we we go through these verses. Verses 3 through 11 of 2 Peter 1. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own excellence and glory, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason... Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we do thank You for Your Word. I pray that today would be, perhaps for some, unlike any other. Your Word would penetrate deep into our hearts, that we would yield to what it says, that we would desire afresh to live in light of Your commandments. May You show us as we consider these virtues, the outline, the character, the person, and the glory of our Messiah. If You would, where You are in Your own heart and mind, please pray that the Lord would grant us all understanding, that we would be diligent to consider these things, that we regard our hearts and minds from distractions. If you would also pray for me, as always, uh, that I would speak helpfully and clearly and succinctly, and that I would be able to make it through as I'm struggling with a little bit of illness today. Father, we thank You and we know that the Lord's Day is Your design. It is a good gift to us to drink deeply from all the grace that You have made available to us when Your people gather. May it be so today. In Jesus' name, Amen. This week in our continuation of the study of Second Peter, it's part two, as you can see. 
because we investigated verses 5 through 7 last week. And in that message, we had three exegetical questions. This is somewhat a, a review or recap, if you will. Three exegetical questions last week that we asked and sought to answer. Number one, why does our faith need to be supplemented? That's a big question. Why do we need to add something to our faith? You can mess up a lot of stuff by adding anything to it. And faith seems to be that kind of thing, where if you're to add things to it, you mess it up. But that's not the case. We're supposed to add these things to our faith. Why? We sought to answer that last week. Number two, in what manner are we to add these qualities to our faith? We saw that we should add them diligently. He says, with every effort. Make every effort. And number three, what is the nature of these qualities, these seven qualities? And I sought to define biblically what each of the seven qualities are. So I'll not revisit a whole lot of what was said last week, but this message does depend in some way on what we saw last week, on the work we did there. The, the message today does stand alone, but a lot of the framework and the foundation was laid in our exposition of verses 5 through 7. If there are lingering questions in your mind at the end of our time together today, uh, especially about vo avoiding the abuses of a text like this leading to legalism or pietism, uh, some of those questions are probably answered in the message from last week if you haven't heard it or listened to it. But that first question we sought to answer last week, why does faith need to be supplemented? I began answering that and told you that the text actually presents two kinds of answers to that question. Two big categories of answers. One is a backwards-looking why, and one is a forwards-looking why. In verse 5, if you look at it closely, for this very reason, what is the antecedent? What does the this refer to, and it points back to the realities of salvation in verses 3 through 4. It is an answer to why we should supplement our faith that looks to the past, what God has already done, what He has already decreed that He will do, what He has already promised to do. That is the first why. There is a second why that is found in verses 8 through 11, actually four answers. We're only going to look at the first two in verses 8 and 9 today. We all know that there are two types of why, right? We run into these all the time. Why should you clean your room? Well, looking to the past, a backwards-looking answer, because you wrecked it. That's why you should clean your room. And then there's a forward-looking answer. Why should you clean your room? Because if you don't, your parents are going to confiscate all the toys that you can't keep tidy. True story. So there's an answer to the why question that looks to the past. We look back at what God has already done. We look back at the promises that He has already made. And we say, this is why we should add these qualities to our faith. And then there is a forward-looking, a, a, a why, an answer to the why question that looks to the future. Why should we add these qualities to our faith? And that's how this looks. Counterintuitively then, the gospel realities of verses 3 and 4 are not enough. They are insufficient motivators. They are insufficient reasons that we should supplement our faith with these, virtues, uh, with these virtues, these qualities rather, or else verses 8 through 11 wouldn't exist. That's counterintuitive. It's contrary to much of the teaching and exhortation today. God has made you children of light. Go do it. Be who you are. While that's true, that's not enough. That, that ignores the significant exhortation and pleading of so much of the New Testament. That answers the question why we should do things like this. Perhaps to hear these forward-looking answers in this style of exhortation is not so welcome today. Indeed, each of these four verses are forward-looking answers. These are exhortations we need. So, let's ask the question again and run it through verses 8 through 11. Again, we're only addressing verses 8 and 9 today. 
Why should we add these qualities to our faith? That is, why does our faith need to be supplemented in these ways? Look at how Peter answers that question. It's important to note here that the word translated for, if you're looking at this in the ESV or almost all modern translations, is the same Greek word for because. Okay? So, verse 8. Because if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because, number two, whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Because, number three, if you practice these qualities, you will never fall, as our diligent practice of them confirms our calling and election. And, number four, because in this way there will be richly provided for us an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's how these verses function, structurally and in context. That's why Peter wrote them, to give us the because, the forward-looking answer to the why question, that we should add these qualities to our faith. These four because statements form the outline of this message today and the message next week. I try as best as I can to let the flow and structure of the text determine, set the agenda for both the content and structure of the message, and that will be especially apparent this week and next. So, in verse 8, let's just get right to it. In verse 8, why should we add these seven qualities of virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection and love to our faith because, and I will now state it in the positive, adding and growing in these qualities ensures effectiveness and fruitfulness. Negatively, as, as the passage itself presents it, we can ask, what is ineffective or unfruitful knowledge of the Lord? That's Clearly what it's implying. And so we could add a lot of caveats. We could say a lot of other things about this passage. But at the end of our analysis, we need to have a category still that says that someone can have knowledge of the Lord and be ineffective and unfruitful. This verse implies that there is such a thing. We've encountered two kinds of knowledge so far in our study of Second Peter, and one refers to just cold, hard facts. That's actually the, the quality of knowledge that it says we should add to our face, just, just the cold, hard facts. And then there is deeply personal or intimate knowledge of someone or something. And that's actually the sense that is meant here. The implication, therefore, is that you can have deeply personal and intimate knowledge of the Lord Jesus and yet it will become, unless we add these qualities, it will become unfruitful and ineffective, literally useless. And that, my friends, is what we call startling. All the questions we might want to ask have to do with the simple binary of if a person can be ineffective or unfruitful in their knowledge of the Lord and still be saved. Yes or no? We want to force the text to answer that question for us. And it would take too long to answer that question exegetically, theologically, from other passages. But can we simply say, let us, may we not be the ones to test the theory and try to answer that question. May it not be said of us, that our knowledge of the Lord Jesus became unfruitful and useless. May it not be so in our lives. Let us add these qualities to our faith so that our knowledge of the Lord Jesus proves effective and fruitful. I can imagine Peter's memory of Judas. Need we say any more? Judas had a profoundly personal and intimate knowledge of Jesus. Don't kid yourself and think that he didn't. 
spending every waking moment with Jesus, perhaps, for three years? Working miracles in the name of Jesus? Casting out demons in the name of Jesus? Willing to suffer persecution and being an outcast because of his association with Jesus. And then his knowledge of the Lord proved unfruitful and ineffective in the end because I think Peter would say his faith, his knowledge of the Lord lacked these qualities. As simple as it might sound, there is real value to summarizing this summons of this passage as simply saying this, don't end up like Judas. We can make a line of t-shirts. I've mentioned this before. Don't be like Esau. Don't be like Judas. The list could go on and on. Don't be like Cain. Also, note here that we have a prohibition against stagnation in the faith. He says, if these qualities are yours and increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of Jesus. This is why... We find the apostles, particularly the Apostle Paul, exhorting churches that are very, very loving to be more loving. And he exhorts churches that are very knowledgeable in their theology to, be, to grow in their knowledge. And churches that are keen on brotherly love or service to, to grow in their love and service. Don't stop. Don't become content with whatever level you've reached if these are yours and are increasing. Keep going. Don't stagnate. That's the exhortation of this text. The Christian life is about growth. And growth for Peter here means increasing in these qualities, even if we think that we have attained a very high level of them. Positively, we could switch the text around and phrase it in the positive. What is effective and fruitful knowledge of the Lord? This means knowledge that yields fruit. For the Lord. The Lord is interested in some return from our hearts. This is how Paul puts it in Romans 7. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. He desires and destines that those who are genuinely His children, those who are genuinely together the bride of His Son, that we would bear fruit. We are saved by grace through faith. It is not our own doing, not as a result of work, so that no one may boast. We are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works that God prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. So now, that's verse 8, we want to add these qualities to our faith so that we don't ultimately turn out to be ineffective and unfruitful in our knowledge of the Lord. Verse 9, here's the second why. Because lacking these qualities means forgetting the gospel, and I'm interpreting what verse 9 is saying here, and potentially apostasy. My wife and I have lost many dear friends to the grave sin of apostasy. And I know that for many of you, that's the exact same thing. We can deny it. We can forget about it, put it to the background of our minds, set it to the side. So that's my personal context, though, when it's in the dozens. Um, and it's keenly painful because of how close those relationships were and, and how highly you esteemed their faith and how much you would have sacrificed to go to the ends of the earth with them to bring the gospel to the unreached people groups. Those are the ones that we find falling away out of our friend group. So that's my personal context when it comes to verses like this. There's great hope in this, because this is offering us the antidote. This is the solution. We add these qualities to our faith so that we don't end up like that. 
That's the hope. That's the, that's the staggering hope. But this is also the context for Peter in writing this exhortation here and why we should add these qualities to our faith. If you've read through Second Peter, you know that chapter 2 is really just a long denunciation of false teachers. It, it's actually quite stinging and, and very shocking language that he uses in, ver, in chapter 2. But these are not men who came into the church flaunting their bad theology and bad teaching. This is a group of men who were within the church and who started teaching false and twisted things. The core of their false doctrine is, or was in essence, that you can have Jesus as your Savior and Messiah even without following Him as Lord. Having the benefits of Christ without following the example of Christ. That was the core of their teaching. So in context, what Peter is doing in these verses, and even as he's keeping things general in chapter 1, he's saying, look, if you want to keep from going down that road, if you don't want to end up like these guys, if you want to be immune from the effects of their false teaching, you have to add these qualities to your faith, or else you're going to end up just like them. This is why it matters so much. Because if we lack these qualities, we will be so nearsighted, even blind, and forget the Gospel altogether. No secret, if you've been here for a while, you know this, and you may feel that I'm beating a dead horse to speak about it, but I refuse to let this happen in our church. I know it's not ultimately up to us to determine who endures to the end, and who falls away. But we are exhorted to make sure this condition doesn't happen. We're exhorted to do certain things for ourselves and for our brothers and sisters so that this blindness, this forgetfulness of the Gospel does not happen. And if we shrink back from that duty, it will. When I was preaching through Hebrews, we came upon... Hebrews 3, 12-14, Take care, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ if we hold our confidence firm to the end. We spent a good bit of time on those verses. Maybe that was excessive, but it was not because that was an inordinate focus. The truths of Hebrews 3, 12-14 are found everywhere throughout the New Testament, and that is exactly the exhortation and warning here from Peter. We must add these qualities to our faith, or we'll become nearsighted and blind, and even in extreme cases, forget the Gospel altogether. If these qualities, these seven qualities, are lacking in our faith, this is what will happen. Or to, to just use the wording of the text explicitly, this is what has happened. And our aptitude as Westerners for asking questions creates an inherent tension in the text. We want to ask, again, questions like this. Well, are these people saved or not? Commentators, Bible teachers struggle to answer this question. Some want to point back and say, well... These are people who have real knowledge of Jesus Christ. Or Peter clearly says that they've been cleansed from their former sins, so many want to assert that these people are genuinely saved, but they are nearsighted, blind, and forgetting the cleansing or forgiving message of the Gospel altogether. What's interesting about Second Peter is that he seems completely uninterested in answering that question systematically. Rather, Peter is more interested in explaining to us two ways of life and where one ends and where the other ends. And what we have now is today. And who will we be? What kind of people will we be? What kind of church will we be? Either way, again, do you want to be one of the ones to test the theory? 
But you can be nearsighted and blind and forget the gospel and still be saved. Do you want to test that? Do you want one to let one of your brothers or sisters test that theory for the final day? I don't. Consider how Hebrews 6 and 10 would answer these questions. I think this is again where the wisdom of James is so helpful. If your faith lacks virtue, if there's no virtue in or connected to your claim to be a Christian, if there's no knowledge, if there's no self-control, if there's no steadfastness, if if there's no godliness, no brotherly affection, no love, then can that faith save you? The answer is obvious. That faith is dead and useless. We should not be interested in trying or testing or measuring just how much nearsightedness or blindness or forgetfulness of the gospel can we tolerate and still be in the kingdom. I think a desire to carve out space for a lackadaisical approach to adding these qualities to our faith indicates a lack of genuine faith. You might hear that and say, that's a hard thing. Who can bear it? But this is my heart towards you pastorally as your brother, as your friend. It is my humble plea that we would be the kind of church where we don't let verse 9 happen to any one of us. And we're kidding ourselves if we don't think it is a real risk. So, let's now apply the hopeful promises and warnings of these two verses to each of the seven virtues that we saw in verse 7. And, and these are hopeful promises. And they are warnings at the same time. Most of the exhortations in the New Testament can fall into both categories simultaneously. If you look closely at verse 8, again, you, you can switch the, the grammar of it around. If these qualities are yours and increasing, you will be effective and fruitful in your faith. And if you have these qualities, again, just switching it to the photo negative in in verse 9, if you have these qualities, you will have sight and you won't forget the Gospel and you will persevere. That's the hopeful promise. And of course, the warning is, is as it's phrased in the text. So I'm trying to present both, even though the text itself lends towards the warning side of things. So let's apply these promises, these warnings to all seven virtues, or qualities rather. So, adding virtue to our faith as we trust in Christ will cause us to be fruitful and effective in the knowledge of the Lord. And it will guard us against forgetting the gospel and even apostasy. How does virtue do that? What we talked about last week is that this virtue is this idea of moral excellence or seeking or desiring to do the praiseworthy thing. Not just the bare minimum of it's not sinful, but striving to be honorable. Striving to outdo one another in showing honor. That's what virtue is. So as we add this moral excellence, this desire to go the extra mile, and as we add these real tangible actions that are praiseworthy and excellent, that is the proper nourishment that our faith needs to be effective and bear fruit and not fail. Your faith needs to be watered and given nutrients. And adding virtue does that very thing. If we refuse to do the excellent, the praiseworthy thing, or if we become lazy or lethargic in our pursuit of holiness and seeking the kingdom, our faith itself will become ineffective and unfruitful because that attitude of good enough and that spirit residing in all of us to prefer the easy thing, the convenient thing, will starve and suffocate and choke out your faith and it won't bear fruit. This is exactly what the parable of the seed and the sower makes explicit. If we lack this virtue, or if we are okay with a basic ho-hum pursuit of the Lord, a basic ho-hum version of Christianity, 
And if we view a summons like this to do the praiseworthy thing and the excellent thing as a nice to have, but I'm not going to put forth the effort to do it, or it's fine if God wants to stir that up in me, but until then I'm just going to wait. If that's our posture, then it will result in functional ignorance of the gospel. That road leads down to functional ignorance of the gospel. It will end not just in a loss of tangible reward on the last day, but it may in fact end in outright apostasy. We can be those who begin well with a lot of apparent evidence of grace, but then outright denying the Lord. Obviously in extreme cases, but this is a sliding scale. How much of that are you okay with in your life? In faith, add virtue to your faith so it won't fail. Adding knowledge to our faith as we trust in Christ will cause us to be fruitful and effective in the knowledge of the Lord. And it will guard us against forgetting the Gospel and even apostasy. How does knowledge do that? As an analogy, I recently ordered and delivered to my lovely wife a ring as a gift. I'm not boasting, I'm not bragging, because it actually arrived late for Valentine's Day. She still liked it, so I guess it was a success. But you know what I needed to know in order for my desire to bless her to be effective? I needed to know her ring size. Knowledge is necessary in order for desires and good intentions to come to fruition. You need knowledge added to your faith in order to be effective and fruitful. You may have all the right desires and motives and thoughts, but in the Christian life, it's not always the thought that counts. There is almost nothing more damaging to relationships and our attempts to minister to people and serve the Lord if we do not supplement our faith with knowledge. Good intentions and good words are not enough. We need to know about people before we try to encourage and exhort them. We need to know about the Bible and the history of our faith before we make confident assertions. We need knowledge of our own lack of knowledge before we can even be useful at all in the kingdom of God. The knowledgeable pursuit of knowledge promotes humility. The more you know, the more you know that you don't know. And if you become overly comfortable, if we, if I, become overly comfortable in our theological understanding or our knowledge about how the world works, about how we think it ought to work, if we feel that we've got it all figured out, then we don't really have knowledge. What we have is something else. Rather, we are the designers and devotees of our own echo chamber of ideas. That's what we are. Faith with a humble and honest pursuit of knowledge will bear fruit and will not fail in times of trial because supplementing our faith with knowledge makes it more steadfast. And more rooted. The way we are using this analogy of a plant or some type of uh, vine or tree. And adding knowledge to your faith is like setting up a trellis so that that vine can grow. Or setting up a stake next to that baby tree so that the tree can grow. That's what knowledge does. That's how knowledge can help your faith not fail. Now on to self-control. How does self-control do this? Adding self-control to our faith as we trust in Christ will cause us to be fruitful and effective in the knowledge of the Lord. And it will guard us against forgetting the gospel and even apostasy. How does self-control do that? As we grow in self-control, we are less susceptible to the free flow of our emotions. Less susceptible to the invariable ups and downs that come into our lives. Seeking the Lord and desiring to serve Him is filled 
with discouragements and disruptions. If anyone tells you otherwise, I doubt that they have been trying to serve or follow the Lord very hard or very long. But self-control takes yourself by the scruff of the neck and says, now listen here you, we will not get distracted by lusts. We will not get distracted by self-pity. We will not get distracted by discouragement. We will follow the Lord. That's what self-control does. It takes yourself in your own hand and, and exhorts yourself to be a certain way. In his book on marriage, uh, Dr. Keller uses a perfect analogy from the Odyssey for what self-control looks like. Quote, When Ulysses was traveling to the island of the Sirens, he knew that he would go mad when he heard the voices of the women on the rocks. He also learned that the insanity would be temporary, lasting until he could get out of earshot. He didn't want to do anything while temporarily insane that would have had permanent bad consequences. So he put wax in the ears of his sailors, tied himself to the mast, and told his men to keep him on course no matter what he yelled. Self-control is that will, that set of desires that takes yourself in your own hands and ties yourself to the mast and stuffs wax in your ears so that you will not abandon your course. Now on to steadfastness. Adding steadfastness to our faith as we trust in Christ will cause us to be fruitful and effective in the knowledge of the Lord. And it will guard us against forgetting the gospel and even apostasy. How does steadfastness do that? As we saw last week, steadfastness, this word, equals uh, endurance. You might think of it as a holy stubbornness. There is such a thing. Not all stubbornness is bad. When we have that firm commitment to the things that really matter, that firm Zeal to endure trial with the faith-filled good attitude for the sake of our Lord. When we have actual follow-through with our commitments, and when we aspire to do all things for the Lord, that is what steadfastness means. And in having that posture of will, that posture of mind, our faith is brought to fruition, and it doesn't sit there unused. In the words of Jesus, speaking about this very concept of steadfastness or endurance, He says this in Matthew 24, They will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. You will be hated by all nations for My name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will go cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. That is steadfastness. That even in the face of trials like that, that are all around, we hold fast and endure to the end. And from Hebrews 10, we read this just a few weeks ago. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. That holy defiance of spiritual apathy that holy defiance of giving up, that holy stubbornness of will that says we are of those who persevere in our faith. We are of those who do not shrink back and are destroyed. That is steadfastness in action when it is willing to put it to work. Next, godliness. Adding godliness to our faith as we trust in Christ will cause us to be fruitful and effective in the knowledge of the Lord, and will guard us against forgetting the gospel and even apostasy. How does godliness do that? Godliness, in this sense, 
moves us beyond the desire to simply avoid sin or to do good things. That might sound odd to you, but I think a lot of our motivations for doing good and avoiding sin are more akin to karma than we would openly admit. Live the way God commands so good things will happen to you. Avoid the bad stuff so bad things won't happen to you. Karma. If you live that way, your knowledge of the Lord will prove eventually unfruitful because, as it is very often the case, the more you insist on doing the right thing, very often in this world, being under the power of the enemy, it will go worse for you. Just ask Jesus or the Apostle Paul or any of the greats of our faith. So what does godliness, how how does godliness come in and solve the problem? A desire to be godly is to be like your father. Can that suffice? Is that enough? That simple truth be enough for us, brothers and sisters? That we don't try to see the result of our actions so much as how well it will go for us or how bad or how good it will go, but simply, I want to behave as my father behaves. This is what adding godliness does to our faith. It helps us prove effective and fruitful because our sole focus is on imitating the Father. And that's exactly how the Lord Jesus lived. His sole aim, his primary desire was to please the Father. The only question is, do we see the Father clearly enough and love him passionately enough to add this kind of godliness to our faith? That pursuit of godliness is connected to our perseverance unto the last day. This is how John puts it in 1 John 3, 2 and 3. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we will see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. That's how godliness makes us persevere to the last day. All genuine godliness and the faith-preserving effect of it can be summarized in this one statement, I want to be like my Father. Adding brotherly affection to our faith as we trust in Christ will cause us to be fruitful and effective in the knowledge of our Lord and will guard us against forgetting the Gospel and even apostasy. How does brotherly affection do that? Put very simply, brotherly affection or concern for and delight in the well-being of our brothers and sisters help us keep our eyes off ourselves. There are just so many ways brotherly affection has this wonderful effect. But is it not a grave danger for us as we walk through this Christian life that we become so self-absorbed, so self-focused, so navel-gazing? Either in a prideful way or in a self-condemning way, our focus is often always on ourselves. And so brotherly affection enters in and says, let your affection, let the focus of your mind rather be on the good of others, particularly those of the household of faith. But we are so focused on ourselves, how we feel, how we are doing, how something impacts or influences us, how we are inconvenienced or helped, if we are being taken advantage of or not, if our views and ideas and preferences are being taken into consideration or not. And all of that will undo us. And this is perhaps the exact thing that Judas lacked. He probably lacked many other things, but this is the thing that was at work in a very obvious way in his betrayal of Christ. He was self-absorbed. He was just interested in number one. What is our 20 pieces of silver? 
unlocking real, genuine, brotherly affection will enable you to unlock the whole of Christian life from start to finish. And this brotherly affection is in place of that self-absorption that tragically gets a pass because we dress it up with Bible verses. Without genuine brotherly affection, the more focused on self we will become, the more me and mine become more important than king and kingdom. To put it bluntly, if your faith, if my faith, is like a vine meant to produce fruit or a a tree meant to produce fruit for the Lord, a lack of brotherly affection would be like taking all the water away from that vine or tree and giving it salt instead. That's the effect it will have on your faith. We'll talk about this text next week as we drill down on verses 10 and 11. But in answering the question, how does brotherly affection help us remain fruitful and effective? And how does it help us not forget the gospel and and preserve us against the sin of apostasy? I can think of no more vivid illustration of this principle than the words of Jesus himself when it comes to the final judgment even as you did it unto one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it unto me. Finally, adding love to our faith as we trust in Christ will cause us to be fruitful and effective in the knowledge of the Lord and will guard us against forgetting the gospel and even apostasy. How does love do that? Love here, as we discussed last week, is more general and precise at the same time than brotherly affection. Instead of just love of brother and sister in Christ, this is loving like God loves, in an overabundance of joy and delight in the good of another and a willingness and zeal to give of oneself to the good of another, even our enemies. The relationship between brotherly love and love in this text, if you you want to use this analogy, you can. In our brotherly affection, if, if we're really growing in that, then wouldn't we even want our enemies to become our brothers? That's the effect that God's love has towards His enemies, that He would bring many sons to glory. His love is that way, that even those outside, those who are His enemies and hate Him and want Him dead, He's going to bring them in and cause them to be His family. That's what this agape love is like. And it's because of this kind of love that we're saved. This kind of love in the Father's heart is why we're in the kingdom and why we have hope at all. And yet the deception is at work out there that a person can be saved by this kind of love and yet not be growing in it. And I know we would never say it that way. But when we carve out a place in our hearts for hatred, or when we carve out a place in our hearts for bitterness or the festering of old grudges, when we carve out a space in our heart for resentment and jealousy, those areas of our heart begin to die. Here are the soul-searching kinds of questions when it comes to love and calling ourselves on the carpet to supplement our faith with genuine God-like love. If God thought of me and felt towards me the way I feel towards the unsaved, the woke, the Marxists, even the Californians and the Canadians, would I be saved at all? If God thought of me and felt towards me the way I think and feel towards certain undesirables of my Christian brothers and sisters, would I receive warm welcome at His table on the last day? We must add this God-like agape love to our faith or we can have all the knowledge of Jesus Christ that we want and yet it will prove ineffective and unfruitful because our hearts will become callous and cold and our faith will perhaps utterly fail on the last day. And that is the hope that these passages give us the antidote for all of this. The worst thing that could happen to you 
to anyone is falling away. And these verses, these four together, give us the solution. We add these qualities to our faith so that that won't happen. I don't like ending a passage abruptly, but part three is next week, and we will investigate verses 10 and 11. But know, again, we have this cure. We know the way to avoid dullness and nearsightedness and blindness and ineffectiveness and unfruitfulness and even a forgetfulness of the gospel. In faith, we add virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and love to our faith. And let me just encourage you. You're hearing me describe all these virtues and you're finding in yourself a complete inadequacy, a lack of strength, maybe even a lack of zeal for these things. You're not alone. These things are truly alien in the sense that they are not natural. These are the path given to us as adopted sons and daughters of God. They are not intuitive. They are not easy. And so if you find it a struggle to add self-control, add knowledge, add brotherly affection, or any of them to your faith, this is the Christian experience. No one stumbles into these things by accident. You don't just wake up one morning and find all these things being more the case. This is why we must make every effort to supplement these things to our faith. And so the encouragement is this. That desire, that clarity that you have perhaps in your mind right now that sees these things demonstrated perfectly in the example of Jesus, that is His Holy Spirit at work right now showing them to you and creating in your heart a desire for them. And so you can trust knowing that as you patiently, earnestly seek them, that He is still at work. It is better, it is far, far better to know the ways that you lack these and to strive for them, even in a very imperfect way, than to believe falsely that you have them and to walk confidently, not considering how you can grow and how we can increase in these things. God is at work even in the conviction, even in the clarity of where we see we lack and where we fall short of the glory of God. That is where the gospel is sweetest, when the promise of His grace is such a balm to our souls because His mercy abounds to the chief of sinners. And as we know and as we become more acquainted with the ways that we fall short of virtue, knowledge, self-control, and all the rest, that's when we must hold more tightly. And even I would say that's when we can hold more tightly to the promises of His forgiveness and the assurance of His pardon if we approach confessingly and humbly, knowing that all comes from Him.